I was uh, finishing off uh, last Sunday's sermon, and somewhere at the end of the sermon, a voice spoke to me that I had not fully discharged the word that uh, he had given. And so I'm actually going to share with you the last part of that sermon, which has not fully been given, and it had to do with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, yes? And that's in Luke chapter 4. To just put it into context, um, we are looking at the, the, the way in which somehow in God's economy, God's schedule, or His calendar, there's a way in which significant things today, the significant things of the, the realm of the Spirit, seem to follow the calendar of the Old Testament. So we see that, that um, God chose for the, um, the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus to happen during the time of Passover, that the resurrection took place after that, and after the, after the pa- Passover, what we have is, the, in the Old Testament calendar, the Shavuot, which is the, the feast of first fruits, the harvest. And of all the days for the Holy Spirit to be poured out, the Lord chose the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, to do that. And it's very interesting if you look at the Hebrew calendar, there are significant things that take place in the calendar of God's, God's uh, dealings with uh, um, Israel. But at the same time, it's important for us to see that God has regard to those things even in the New Testament. We're not bound to those things, but He has regard to those things. Now, there's something about the sequencing of God's Holy Spirit events, highly New Testament, that seems to follow the calendar. And so, it was very interesting to actually see this. And um, what we talked about last Sunday has to do with the fact that um, we can ask the question, what happens after the resurrection? And the question, the question is answered by Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, or coinciding the feast of the first fruits. And so I want to say that there is something about the way the Lord's economy works, the way He's working, that makes us look forward to an outpouring of the Holy Spirit after Easter. If you ask me what happens after Easter, what happens after that? We have something of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Come. The, day, uh, the Good Friday speaks of the fact that we died with Him. The resurrection speaks of the fact that He rose again, and not only did He rise again, He gave us the resurrection life. And the day of Pentecost speaks of the fact that the resurrection life is not just an empty life, but it's a life in which it is animated and filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? So there's a way in which God is preparing us each time for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I would hazard a guess that in this period, the Lord is doing that. Now, the Holy Spirit has been poured out and has been given eternally for us. Yeah? So there's a way in which there's no more Holy Spirit that we can get. We've been given the Spirit without measure, the Bible says. You, you, can't, you can't top that. But there's a way in which the Holy Spirit can be received and allowed to take control of, over more of our lives, cause us to experience more empowerment in real life, in real time, on our side of eternity. And so, even as God fills us and fills us and fills us with the Holy Spirit, it seems as if there are times of preparation in which God gets ourselves out of the way, gets sin out of the way, cleanses us, deals with us, uh, disciplines us so that more space can be carved out for the Holy Spirit so that power can actually happen. And so in Luke chapter 4, we saw that the whole incident of the temptation of Jesus was bracketed by two things. He was baptized, speaking of death and resurrection. And then as he was baptized, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he's driven by the Spirit into the, uh, into the desert where he overcomes the devil. And after he overcomes the devil, it says he went out with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And there is a nuance of difference in that. Amen? So that we have we've been given the Holy Spirit without measure, but God wants to empower us with the Holy Spirit so that He has more of us. We have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have us? That's always the question, yeah? And so the temptation and the trials in the wilderness have to do with God working and dealing in our lives for that purpose, so that not just because He, he enjoys our suffering, but because of the fact that He wants to make us more empowered for, to be used by Him, by His Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your presence here. We thank You that Your presence is not here, just in theory, not, not as a hypothesis, or not just as words or principles, but because of the fact that You really are here, and that You are really in, in real time, in the very days and hours and minutes of our lives now, preparing us to be filled. Not only that, Lord, we... Acknowledge the fact that you are, here, you are here to speak to every single one of us individually. How you do that, I have no idea. But Lord, we thank you that your promise is that you will speak so personally, so infinitely personally, that we will all have left this, this, this hall at 12.30 being spoken to. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, once again, to come. Come to us in a way that is so tailored to our unique and individual lives that tremendous miracle will take place today. We are anticipating that and we ask you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn, please turn with me to Luke chapter 4 and we will read that last part of it, that tem- the temptation of Jesus. One thing about VCF, we always begin our sermons in the middle. We don't have proper beginnings. <laughs> um, verse chapter 4, we'll read that whole pericope. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours, given to him by the devil. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And this, and this third temptation is something that I'd uh, like us to be able to dwell on today. And He took Him to Jerusalem and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And... On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. If you are the Son of God, if you are really the Son of God, prove it by throwing yourself down, and God will fulfill Psalm 91 for you. On your hands, He will bear you up, lest you strike your, your foot against a stone. And Jesus answers him this, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, You shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Yeah. Do you remember another place in the scriptures where God complains against his people because they put him to the test? Yeah. Meribah. And so I'd like to turn with you to Psalm 95 because putting the Lord to the test is something that we do all the time. Now, um, we may not think we're doing that, but look at Psalm 95. And in Psalm 95, we see this repeated. Verse 9. Uh, sorry, uh, verse 7, okay? The second part. Today, if you hear His voice, do not list, harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. 
though they had seen my work. So, so don't do this. Don't put me to the test like your fathers who put me to the proof. Yeah? Put me to the proof even though they had seen my work. For thir- 40 years, I loathed that generation and said there are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Yeah? Today, I want to talk about anxiety and pleasure. Um, on Friday, I went with Zephy to New York City to watch a play, uh, Macbeth. Macbeth was playing at the Long Acre. And uh, anybody know who played Macbeth? Never mind. It was Daniel Craig. Bond. James Bond. It was Daniel Craig. And he played a great uh, Macbeth. But one of the things about Macbeth that came out as a theme is the fact of certainty, right? Certainty in the midst of anxiety. anxiety. And so what had happened is that for many of you who uh, have uh, read or seen Macbeth played out, um, Macbeth had, uh, given, had been confronted by the three witches, right? And the three witches had said that you will be not only Thane of Glamis, but you will also be Thane of Cawdor. Thane is like a duke, like lord. And Thane of Cawdor he became. And then the, the witches said, not only that, you will be king hereafter. And he said, the witches turned to Banco, his friend, and said, you will not be king, but your sons will be king. And so this thing gets into him. And he comes into this um, deep and dark enterprise by which he would kill king, the king, King Duncan, so that he will become king. True enough, when he comes back from the battle, he's told that he's now been given the thaneship of Cawdor because the thaneship of Cawdor has been taken from the rebellious one from the king and given to Macbeth. And suddenly he sees that he's become the, the, richer, the witch's prophecy or um, uh, oracle has come to pass. And he's, that something tempts him and, and, and it's like a seed of ambition is put in his heart. And the, the theme of darkness, the th- theme of evil, the theme of demonic power is all there in, in Macbeth. And so he, he does the deed, right? At the, uh, at the encouragement of uh, his wife, Lady Macbeth. And he kills Duncan and he becomes king. And as he becomes king, you begin to slowly see his anxiety rise. And then he comes to a place where he's suspicious of everybody. And he has to deal with the tremendous anxiety of now holding the crown that sits uncertainly upon his head. Because now Duncan's, Duncan's uh, son Malcolm is a potential com- competition, right? As well as others, yeah, Banco's son, Fleon's son. We won't go into all that. But here he is, he's dealing with anxiety. And so he goes back to the witches and he has to deal with anxiety because he needs certainty. Okay, he needs certainty. So he goes back to the witches and he, he comes to them and he says, you hags, what have you done? Now tell me, show me what's going to happen thereafter. And the witches tell him, Macbeth shall never be vanquished until great Burnham Wood, the forest, marches to Dunsinan Hill and comes against him. So, what he's saying is this, that will, this is how you will be vanquished, if ever, right? When Burnham Wood marches to Dunsinan Hill, how can a, a forest march, right? Correct? So, the, the, so Macbeth is assured. He's assured. And he says the other thing that's going to happen is that whoever is kill, kill you, kills you, will not be born of woman. And so Macbeth is saying, hey, this is great. I'm out of the woods, so to speak. Because there is no one who is not born of women. Correct? And he, 
finds an island of security in the midst of anxiety. And this island of security is borne out by the fact that the witches have prophesied correctly and, they have, and what they prophesied has come to pass. And so Macbeth finds, after that, his confidence rising while Lady Macbeth is falling apart in her soul because of what she has done against her nature. And as Macbeth begins to, to wax in uh, confidence, he also waxes strong in his ruthlessness. He kills Macduff's children, kills Macduff's wives. He just becomes a really cruel king and also a very, uh, a very uh, ruthless king as well. So you have that thing in him that needs security. He needs a proof of security. And so you see Macbeth placing his bets on the witch's um, prophecy, but he also places his bets on the politics that he conducts, yeah? Killing off Macduff's children, you know, going for it and, and just getting rid of all the competition. And so you can see in the issue of anxiety, there's this thing that's in human beings that we deal with anxiety by trying to find certainty. Okay. Do you remember another person who had an encounter with also a very strange and a mysterious person? It was Joshua, right? In Joshua chapter 5. He comes up and faced up against him is the very commanding commander of the Lord hosts, of hosts with his sword drawn. And Joshua is about to face Jericho and he's anxious to a large extent. Correct? So the commander of the Lord of hosts identifies himself and Joshua wants certainty as well. What are the instructions? Tell me what to do. What's your plan, God? Because he has enough certainty in God's reliability to know that if God can just give him the word, he'll be fine. He can stand on it. And do you remember what the commander of the Lord of hosts says to him when he asks, what do you want me to do? Take your sandals from off your feet. He doesn't give him certitude. He says, this is what's going to be needed for you to defeat Jericho. You need to be able to be in touch with the holy so much so that your skin is in immediate to the holy. You must not have any separation from that. You have to know the presence of God even though you don't feel it. Even though you can't see it. You have to know that the presence of God is not something seen. It's not even something that's necessarily sensed. The presence of God and the, 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 the power of God defies all that defies all kinds of practical formulations that we've had from our past experience. And what the, the captain of the Lord of hosts tells Joshua, which, which comforts me, is this. There are going to be times when everything looks bad and your feelings are all over the place, right? But I am here. And you have to take off the shoes of protection, the shoes that are going somewhere, the always going somewhere, always going ahead, always going to the future, so that you can be still. And if you, be, if, you still be, if you be still not depending upon your senses, not depending on your sight, the knowledge of the presence of God, the power of God will come to you. So Joshua understood, was doing this. But that's the thing. The thing about it is this. We are constantly wanting proof. So if you go back to Psalm 95, perhaps it may, may make more sense when he says, your fathers put me to the test and put me to proof though they had seen my work. What, he's, what the psalmist is saying is this. The problem with the nation of Israel is this. They're constantly wanting proof of God. Okay? You're always wanting proof. 
Because of that, you cannot enter into the rest. You can't enter into the way in which God works through you. You cannot enter into this instinctive, intuitive way in which the Holy Spirit moves and you're able to move quickly with Him without any kind of anxiety, without any, any kind of haste. You will not enter into that rest. You will not enter into the, the place of conquering and seeing the power of God work in your life because you only can work if there's proof. But this proof that you're looking for is proof that's on your own terms. Yeah? It's a proof that's on your own terms. But the problem is this. You are telling God, you have to make me satisfied. The problem is this. You are fiddled with suspicion, insecurity, and diseased perception. So what you're saying is that God has to fit into your diseased perceptions. And you have to set up proofs and tests for God to be sure for you. Does that make sense? So the children of Israel, Psalm 95 was, was basically saying is this. What they were doing is that they were setting up tests for God when there was problems. But problems come. What we want is certitude. We want a, a, a more comfortable place. And I got to tell you, I found in my own self, as I grow older, surprisingly, the cause for anxiety increases. I'm not this yogi who's like 64 years old and can sit down and the, and the bombs may be flying around and be completely at rest. I'm not. Actually, when I see things happening, I, I get anxious because I can see where they're going sometimes and sometimes I don't see where they're going. But there's something about anxiety that I feel that we need to address because anxiety causes us to immediately reach out for proof or reach out for something that can give us an assurance in and of ourselves. I believe that what Jesus was speaking about was, a, was this third dimension of temptation that is very crucial for us. Because when God says, you shall never enter into my rest because you always are astray, you, he's saying, you do not know my way of working. Your way is for me to prove something so that it feels safe for you. Then you move into it. That's how you move. You, you set up proofs. You want to test me so that you will be satisfied. Does that make sense? That is why many Christians don't see many signs and wonders happening. Don't see many miracles happening. Because... They will believe God as long as God furnishes assurance to them. Now, we have not thought about the fact that the one who wants assurance is diseased, is deformed. Our perception of things, the perception of, of people, our perception of people's motives, we, our perception of God is deformed, is, 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 uh, is, is, is diseased. And what happens is this, when God wants to do great things through us, He has to break that regnant, that kind of, that, that, um, that, uh, kind of ruling um, structure of our thought, our structure of belief, in such a way that He can cause us to move with Him rather than us getting proof, and then we move. Proof, and move. And we require five proofs, five signs, okay, then we move. Another five signs, then okay, then we'll move. Before long, the bus has gone. What God wants to do is to actually cause us to be, in our intuition, in our spirit, linked up with Him so much so that when He, he moves, you can feel the nudge. But for that to happen, our inside has to be transformed. Don't even try to do it now. Because your inside will intuit all kinds of idiot, idiot, idiotic things. I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit extreme on that. But to the extent that we have been more and more obedient and in faith with Him, we will find that we move by a totally different dynamic. It feels like God is just, just pulling us a little bit. Just pulling us a, a little bit. If someone asks you, how do you know? You can say, I don't know. I just feel the, 
pool. How long have you known God? I've known God a while, but I know this pool. I feel the pool. I know the voice is like that. Does that make sense? So what happened is that the children of Israel would never be qualified to enter into the promised land because promised land is filled with, with, with anxieties, with a lot of fears, a lot of giants. And for God to let them be mercifully perishing in the wilderness rather than getting slapped around in the, in the, in the promised land was necessary because the promise, because the children of Israel hadn't changed their proof requiring test setting tendency. And what Jesus is basically saying is this. You can go into the power of the Holy Spirit if you can break this, this Macbeth certitude, this independent and autonomous, self-sufficient certitude. And what God is doing in our lives is to not deny logic, not to deny rationality, but to bring in His presence, which is another set of data that can only be received in our heart, in our spirit. Humankind is exceedingly presumptuous when we set up proofs for God to jump over so that we, in our diseased minds, can be assured. I'll tell you. i tell you. I call these islands of unfaith. We're constantly wanting these islands of faith. You know, when I was a kid, my uncle wanted to teach me how to swim. So he had this swimming pool, and we, we loved swimming, you know. Uh, my sister and I loved swimming because we had these duckies and we had these brown rings that you can put on the, on the pool. We loved going to the water. So when he says, want to go swimming, we'd say, yeah. And what we meant by swimming is swimming with the float. Like we had these islands in the pool, okay? And we had these places in, in, in the pool that were safe. We, f- we liked it. We liked being hanging on to these islands because those we did not require us to swim. Does that make sense? Or we would go to the, to the, to the, to the, to the wall or to the steps of the pool and all that when you were, when you were really young. Now, some of us are like this. In the, the matter of swimming with God, we actually set up these islands of safety. These islands of safety, they feel good actually. We feel comfortable in these islands of safety. But if there's an island of safety here, like one, one ducky here that you can hold on to, and another penguin over there, to get from here to here is difficult because the safe place, the goal of our, of, of our swimming or being in the water or moving in the water is to get from one ducky to another ducky. So that our duckies all line up, right? So when we line up all our duckies, we swim from one ducky to another because the goal is to get to the other ducky of certitude, of safety. Does that make sense? Now, as a kid, I knew when my uncle took me swimming, I have to constantly get to the other ducky. That is not swimming, actually. It is not that fun. The fun that we get from holding on to these islands of certainty where the, 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 the ground is solid to us, is really not working with God. It's not being filled with the Holy Spirit, not being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. What God wants to do is to teach us how to swim. Does that make sense? Now, for those of you who are ducky kind of people, I've got to tell you a secret. Swimming is more fun than hanging on to a floater. It's a lot more fun than hanging on to the side of the pool. Yeah? And so what the children of Israel wanted to do is to make their swimming session constantly going from one certainty to another. Warning one from, from one, one island to another. May I suggest to you that actually this realm, this realm of functioning is actually 
not only going to slow you down, you miss most of, the, most of the whole thing about swimming. You just miss the whole thing. Because of the fact that there is some comfort and some safety and pleasure in those things that allow you to be safe in, in your own terms, yeah, in your own terms, you will find that that is pleasurable to some extent, but it is not going to actually help you to move in what is really the point of swimming. It's what the real point of being a Christian is. We'll stop there right now. Because many good evangelical Christians are stuck here, right there. You set up proofs, you set up testing to know whether you should move in this. And you have to consider your ways just as I have to consider my ways with, in, re, in regard to my anxieties and regard with your anxieties. We want places of autonomy in and of themselves, in and of ourselves, so that we can be sufficient in ourselves. And that is where Christianity becomes a Christianity in name and in internal kind of um, um, movements, but never a Christianity that is dynamic. And what the psalmist in Psalm 95 says is, your father put, fathers put me to the test. What, the, what he's saying is, the father said, God, I'll only move if you prove to me that it's safe. You put me to the proof even you have to, though you have seen my work. So there were times in which God entered into their dysfunctional structure of proofs, the dysfunctional souls that require this kind of proof. Have you seen somebody who's really suspicious? Who's always suspecting somebody? And you have to prove it to them. No, that's not my intention. No, that's not the intention. But they will... They will, they, will, they will require it. And then there will be some proof that will show that, yeah, this person was not guilty. He was innocent. Have you ever seen such people? Have you lived with such people before? Or lived among such people before? Yes? They're just suspicious. They're, there's a certain brokenness in them that makes them feel very fearful and anticipate things that are going to go wrong because... There is some bad motivation in the other person. Have you seen that? Have you seen that with God as well? Have you seen that God, the children of Israel, constantly projecting upon God, yeah, you brought us out here into the wilderness so that we can die in the wilderness because there are not enough graves in Egypt. So they, they are wanting God to enter into this false framework of perception of God. And God has to work extra hard to prove that... Pro- Prove it within their, their, their terms. Correct? And does God do that? He does. The problem with that is that it makes God not that close to you. It makes you not be able to move like in the secrets of God, in the nudges of God. We don't really get to know God that much. Because God's always having to prove, and He does. He's gracious. Yeah? I've been thinking about this and praying about this a lot. Let's have a look at this, okay? (laughs) Psalm 95, reading from verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us enter into His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. Stop. Are these verses you can get excited about? Some, yeah. Some, I don't know. I don't know. I have some reserve. Here's the reserve that I have. I don't want to praise God with everything that's within me and sound really, really loud and everything and, and so uh, unconditional about that. And then suddenly the next day, something terrible happens and I feel, ah, oh, I've been disappointed by this God. I was so extroverted and I, I was so vocal about my praise of Him. Actually, 
I'm going to let my praise be a little bit more cautious. I will have a certain cautious optimism about God and I will praise Him with a little bit of reserve. The, the thing that struck me is this. How do I get into verse 1, 2, and 3, that, that we, which we just read, with my whole soul, with my whole heart? How do I do that? Knowing that in my own anxiety, I just feel that just around the corner, there's another thing, bad thing that's going to happen. I'm going to fall flat on my face. I don't want to praise Him too much because He may disappoint me. Correct? Which is what happened in the, the, in the waters of Meribah. They were disappointed with God. God, it, God didn't, didn't show up. He didn't deliver. They were hurt. And because of that, they got really angry. And they got bitter. And they hardened their hearts. The thing about it is this. How do I do verse 1, 2, and 3 and sing to the Lord with all that, without reserve, you know, without reserve, without any kind of holding back. And to be able to praise God with all my heart, without my mouth, with, with everything, with my strength, with all my intestines. Praise God like that. How about that? And when I first read that verse, those three verses, immediately I caught it in myself. I know my reaction to those three verses is, I know you do good things. This is a season for good things, but season for bad things is coming. In fact, touch wood. I praise you today. Tomorrow you're going to do exactly what I praise I. I, what is the opposite of what I praise you for? We have this reserve at the back of our minds. You have to deal with it. Because if you don't deal with it, it will, it will constantly make you want to set up proofs for God. And you will only be able to move like this. You can't move with God. You can't dance with God. You can't run with God. You can't move from miracle to miracle to miracle to providence to mighty, mighty deeds of God. You will stay silent in the pews during, during worship. You will not have a word of knowledge. You will not have a prophecy. You won't have this. Because you always want proof. But the proof, you've got to understand, it has to be on our own terms. Within my own mind, without my own dysfunctionality. Okay? And so I, I wonder whether this is something that God wants to, to deal in us. Verse 4, 5, and 6. In His hand are the deep depths of the earth. In His hand are the heights of the mountains. In His hand are the, the, the dry land that He has formed. In His hands I am the sheep. And what he's basically, the psalmist is saying is this. Everything is in His hand. I've got to live a life in which everything is in His hand. Any good thing is in His hand. Any high things in his hands, any deep things in his hands, any watery thing. When I go through the through the through the through the Red Seas, it is in his hands. I'm in his hands. I cannot have a certainty that's not in his hand. Okay, here's how I want to think about it this way. few years ago, Cindy and I were going through this very, very difficult court case that lasted for several years regarding her mother's death and one of the members of the family that we were trying to protect. But we didn't realize that the odds were stacked against us. And in wanting to do that, it would mean that our whole livelihood would be threatened because of the forces that we were coming against. And this lasted for a long time, long time. We prayed and prayed. I never prayed so hard. I, I mean hard, praying hard, hard praying, you know. Not praying a lot, but praying hard. It was a lot as well. I spent nights, whole nights praying through until the spiritual atmosphere would break. But it it seemed really like brass. 
And then the Lord spoke to me from Psalm 86 about Him giving us a token of good. To cut a long story short, we were given a holiday, uh, an invitation to go to, to Bath, England, um, for a holiday. And so the Lord spoke to me, okay? Well, I, I, I asked Him, well, in the midst of all this, will, shall we go? And I had the conviction that the Lord put in my heart that it will be completely paid for. Airfare, hotel, everything. Everything, expenses, everything will be paid for. And it will come before, the money would come before the holiday. And true enough, it came plus some more from sources that we had totally not anticipated. So we were going to go on that holiday. But this court case was still hanging over our minds and over my mind. And you will probably know by now that anxiety has become something that has become more sharp in my own heart. It, I don't know why. I don't know why that is. But I battle with anxiety often. And anxiety has become the means by which God draws me close to Him. So I'm okay with that. I always have tended to try to avoid things that will bring anxiety into my own heart. And so I had a pattern of avoidance of anything that pertains anxiety. And the last thing I want to do is to go on a holiday with anxiety hanging over my head. I'd rather not. I'd rather face the anxiety, face the thing, battle it out, and then take the consequences rather than mix a good thing with a bad thing because on, the, on, the, on one hand, I have a, a, an aversion for anxiety and on another, I have a detraction for pleasure. Like holidays, especially holidays with my family. But the Lord seemed to be saying as we went, I set a table for you in the presence of my enemy. Now this was not an assurance it was warfare for me. Because every morning when we were in Bath or when we were in Lyon, I wake up and all the anxieties would pour into my head. We'd be ruined. As uh, Inspector Closel said, we'd be ruined. And I, I remember thinking, this is the warfare. This is where I'm going to stand. You will make my... Make um, a, a meal for me in the presence of my enemy and I'll stare them down right now. And I began to find that every morning that I prayed, I would have a certain peace, a certain pleasure in which I was not only able to enjoy uh, these two historic cities, but I was able to enjoy it with God. Have you experienced the peace of God coming to you in the midst of anxiety? Do you know what? It's a very special thing, you know. The special thing of anxiety mixed in with peace, where the peace comes in and it pushes out anxiety, it passes all understanding, and it guards your heart like garrisoning your heart in Christ Jesus. Because you not only enjoy the holiday, you enjoy Christ Jesus. There's nothing like it. It's the same kind of feeling that I had when I was going for my surgeries, whether it's cancer or my hip surgery. It's a certain kind of feeling that comes when you are really in deep trouble, but the Lord is giving His assurance, and assurance comes to you like a palpable thing that's just there. It sits on your heart, and it gives you pleasure. This pleasure is not just a pleasure that comes with God saying, it's going to be okay. It's not a proof that it's going to be okay. It is just that God witnesses in your heart something very, very special. I live on that. And I don't want to live on anything else than that. I do not want peace in and of itself that's there because everything is physically going to be okay. I don't want that. Because that makes me like Macbeth. It makes me hang on an island of non-swimming. 
leads me on an island of complacency, of self-sufficiency. And the more I live like that, depression begins to come in again. Purposelessness comes in again. Sin begins to come in again. Unbelief begins to come in. You be surprised how quickly that takes place. But God has meant it that we will be in these places in the water in which we have to call out to God and hang on Him until the peace of God comes. That peace is not like anything on earth. Okay? So every day we went through it. All right up to January 8th where we had our court case and God did a miracle. We came out very, very well. Very, very well. I believe that God wants us to not enjoy things in and of themselves either. Not just a matter of anxiety, but even enjoyment. I enjoy travel. I enjoy going on vacations with my family or going on vacations with Cindy. I enjoy that a lot. What I try to do is to make sure that everything that is going to be anxiety-driven or that's a burden or that's work will be finished before the holiday because I or as you say, vacation, because I don't want the vacation to be spoiled. Because pleasure is very important in that particular thing. I've realized that whenever I go on vacation and I enjoy the vacation in and of itself without God, without worship to God, without enjoying Christ in that, it's never that full. It's a bit empty. Things go wrong. Things get upsetting. I believe that God has never intended for us to enjoy pleasure or to have peace outside of Himself. But the human part wants to constantly live in this island in which I can have pure pleasure without God, pure peace without God. No problems happening. And I shared with you this before, and I'll just bear, maybe it bears repeating. I experienced tremendous peace when when I had my cancer diagnosis. And after the cancer was over, and um, the doctor's prognostications that that, that it looks like it's going to be good, there's no cancer as far as they can detect. I stepped out of it, and I realized that I feel peace, but I don't want that kind of peace. That's there just because it looks all fine. That kind of peace doesn't last. That kind of peace is autonomous, me on my own, be by myself. I'll be okay. I have my own personal, personal peace. I don't want that. Because that is not full. It doesn't have the presence of God. And because of that, God has made us to have a little bit of an edgy kind of peace in which the peace is supernaturally there because it's the peace that passes all understanding. Amen? We run to these islands of peace, don't we? And it prevents us from hooking up into God and feeling the the pressure of His hand. In His hand are the deep things of the earth. In His hand are the skies and his hand are the formation of us. Amen? Okay, when, so today, when you hear his voice, verse 7, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah or at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. You see, what happens is that we have a certain reaction to people disappointing us, to God disappointing us, to circumstances disappointing us. And how do you deal with the the sadness or the disappointment that comes when these things take place? The word that's used here, nasa, for, um, for hardening of the heart, 
is the word that's used also of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But the word nasah does not mean that we just harden our heart. It actually means, especially in Pharaoh's case, the strengthening of the heart, the severing, making severe the heart, making the heart severe. Because what happens is that when the heart is filled with um, enemies or, or, or disappointment or bitterness, we have a way of strengthening our heart. It's the way we make our heart strong against anxiety, against enemies, against accusation, against disappointment with people. And what happened with the children of Israel is this. When they came to, disappo- to, to, the, to the desert and experienced a complete reversal, you cannot imagine how tough it was for them. They hardened their hearts. That means they made their hearts severe. Made their hearts severe, you know. Not necessarily just became bitter. It made their hearts angry, strong. How do you make your heart strong when you experience disappointment? How do you make your heart strong when you are coming up against an enemy-type situation? How do you make your heart strong? Some people, they just make themselves angry. They justify themselves. And they justify and strengthen their arguments against the other person. And they harden their hearts in the sense that they they make their hearts unimmovable just in case their argument will be weakened by another point of view. And so what happened with the children of Israel is that they hardened their hearts so that they will not be disappointed by God anymore. I think that's why they couldn't worship the Lord like Psalm 95 verse 1, 2, 2 and 3 was talking about. I think it's because of that that certain amount of reserve caused them, their hearts to be protected but not sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You can't do both at the same time. You just can't. And I feel that in order for us to be waiting for the Holy Spirit and, 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 and allowing the Holy Spirit to come, there must be something that allows us to not harden our heart, not make our hearts severe, not get all moralistic about things, not get all legalistic and get all pokey. There must be some way in which we can actually allow the Holy Spirit to relate to us gentle to gentle, soft to soft, and not suddenly get all hard, get all legalistic, get all kind of um, 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 moralistic about things. And so your fathers put me to the test. They put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Because, see, when you get into argumentative and legal mode, you can't hear God's voice. You can't hear the other person, your brother, your sister's voice. You can't hear it. And because you can't hear it, you can't fully enter into the rest. And so he says, verse 11, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what I believe what God is saying uh, in this, this particular temptation is that the point is not just not being bad or not being unbelieving. It's that he wants to cause us to do mighty miracles and to be able to hear his soft promptings. Not go by proofs, but to allow God to deal with us in his own terms. When there are certain things in which I'm uncertain about, I'm anxious about. I want to ask God, you give me the peace. Not prove to me, in my terms, that it's going to be okay. If I need to change, you change my heart. Amen? I have more things than ever before to be anxious about now and 64 years old. 
I thought I was anxious when I was 20. (laughs) I had so few problems then. The problems don't go away. They actually add. I realized that there is a need for me to be able to deal with these anxieties in a way that's godly. My normal conventional way of dealing with them is to quickly find some proof to buttress my position. And I feel that this is something that the Lord wants to speak to all of us. Not so that we can become softer people, but so that we can be moving with Him. Amen? Let us pray. Bless your name, Lord. Come. Let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with a song of thanksgiving. Let's shout joyfully to him in songs with instruments, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And Lord, I thank you right now for that testimony that you took us into that court case, God, because you wanted to show that you had a bigger battle that you were bringing us into. Thank you right now, not one, but two Medicare fraud cases. And you caused us, Lord God, to see your Supreme Court of Heaven come into the little courts here on earth. And you judged the largest Medicare fraud case in history, God. And you had us see what you do You are the great God. You are the great judge. So we thank you right now that you say, do not be afraid. I'm bigger than it all. And so we say, yes, you are bigger than both of those places, God. You are bigger. Yes, Lord. Lord, we thank you right now that you say there's an inner room that each of us has. And so we want to give you that inner room right now. Yes, Lord. Amen. Whatever the proofs are there that have been put into that inner room, whatever deception of the world that makes us think that scientific proofs are enough or counting numbers are enough or what our friends think about us or our parents think about us is enough. We say, Lord, we just want you in that room. So we send it all out right now. Holy Spirit, come. Blow them all away. That inner room is for you, Lord Jesus. Come and have that inner room now in us. Even now, I believe that we have present in our own lives situations of anxiety that the Lord is saying, bring me in. The one that you're dealing with is not people or things, but with me. I want to invite you to, right now, just lift them up before the Lord. Teach us, O Lord. Your hand that reforms us comforts me from the depths of my heart. Let your mercy be seen. We welcome you. If there's anyone who's been experiencing situations in which you're just desperately looking for some kind of peace, some safety, I want to invite you to come up for prayer. Because God is going to give you not only safety, He's going to give you the peace of God that passes understanding. If God's been speaking to you, just lift up your hands or just open up your hands and just receive the Holy Spirit right now. He's carving out a place for each one of us that perhaps used to be occupied by ways in which we make ourselves sure and assured and at rest and peace. But He's going to put the real rest into us. The rest that's full of His presence full of freedom. The tip of a hat, we know how to move. The tug of a sleeve, 
we know God is leading. So we welcome you, Lord. We welcome you. Come upon every place right now where there's been suffering, where there's unresolved issues in your life, in our lives. We ask you that you come and we welcome you, Lord. Amen. We want to dwell in you and in not the pleasures and not in the anxieties or not in the fruits. We welcome you. Just welcome him right now. I just sense that different people who are, li who are living a little bit on the edge, right there, it's like in between certainty and, uh, and, uh, and deep uh, anxiety. And the Lord's saying, bring me into your certainties as well as your anxiety. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you.